Let's open the Scriptures this morning. A bit of an adjustment to the reading. We're going to pass over the Isaiah passage. Not that it's not relevant, but it didn't figure into the sermon as much as I thought it would. So we're going to start with the Matthew passage and then read a, an extra few verses from John, John chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 17, as mentioned in the bulletin, we're starting a new series of sermons on the gospel of John. And it happens that John begins his gospel with mention of the servant, the forerunner of the Christ, John the Baptist. So we read about John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel. Actually, all of the gospels mention him. But Matthew informs us of his uh, relationship to the prophet Elijah, something that comes up in our text. So Matthew 17, the verses... 9 through 13, Jesus and the disciples, three of them are coming down from the mountain of transfiguration. We pick it up at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's turn from here to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Our text is in John 1, but we'll, we'll save that text reading for after our singing. But let's now read from John 5, the verses 30 through 47. And I invite you to pay attention to the words witness the words, and the word testimony. And they will come, back, uh, come up again in John chapter 1, and we'll see how they are connected. So this is the Lord Jesus speaking. He's interacting with the Jewish leaders. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and that would be John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our text comes from John's Gospel, chapter 1, in the Pew Bible, page 1127. We're going to focus on the verses 19 through 34. We'll at least be able to look at the main thrust of that passage and some of the details, though I don't think we'll get all the details. It's a bit of a larger text. I do want to read with you, beginning at verse 1, to help refresh us with the context. So John 1, verse 1, we'll read to verse 34. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from, John who's, uh, sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ." No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Here begins our text. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So far, our text, in response to the preaching, we'll sing two songs, Psalm 2, the stanzas 3 and 4, which has the promise of God placing His Son on the throne. And then we'll couple that with hymn 26 about Jesus, the Lamb of God. So Psalm 2, 3, and 4, as well as hymn 26. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, going back a couple of months, in December, leading up to Christmas, we spent some time in these opening verses of John's Gospel, and we took time to look specifically at what John writes there about Jesus Christ as the Word, the Word who became flesh. That's what this chapter is mostly famous for, revealing to us that the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made through Him, the Word. In Him was life and light, and He is the fullness of grace and truth. These are verses many of us have memorized or are very familiar with, and it's no secret that John's gospel begins quite differently than the other three gospels, and in fact, it remains quite distinct all the way through. John's gospel, you could say, that his whole book, it gives us more theological depth into the person and the work of Jesus. John tells us things about Jesus that often are not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The things that John tells us, they help to fill in some of the gaps, things we don't always know from the others about what's going on in Jesus' ministry. And they also help to fill out the picture of who Jesus truly is. And the writer does all this for a specific reason. As John writes toward the end of his book, chapter 20, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So that's why John's writing, that we might believe that Jesus is the promised Christ. You see, every Jew was waiting for the Christ to appear, the Messiah. Messiah and Christ, two different words, Greek, Hebrew, same concept. Every Jew was thinking about the Christ. When will He appear? They were looking for the Son promised in Psalm 2 to take up His throne on Mount Zion. And so John writes to convince the people, people who have likely read or heard read the other three Gospels, He kind of takes for granted that they know the the general picture of the other three Gospels. And whether those people are new believers or unbelievers, whether they are Jew or Gentile, he wants to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth really, really is that promised Christ. And yet John's purpose goes further. He wants Christians to understand that the fullness of of the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Certainly, a person can sincerely believe that confession, let's say, on a bare-bones level, that Jesus is the Messiah, like the thief on the cross. He didn't have a lot of extra information, but he was saved. But far better is to come to a fuller understanding, to, to grasp all the implications of that confession and grow deeper in our awareness of who Jesus is, grow deeper in our love for this Jesus, grow stronger in our trust of this Christ, and grow more joyful in our living with Him day by day. That's what the Holy Spirit, through John, wants to impart to us through this gospel. So as we go along in our little series, we're going to go deeper into some things that we're already acquainted with from the other Gospels, but which now come to us from a different perspective with perhaps some freshness and some new aspects here in the fourth Gospel. And right off the hop this morning, we find ourselves reading about the very familiar John the Baptist. We all know about John the Baptist. And yet we hear him described in a very unfamiliar way. From the other Gospels, we know him to be the forerunner to the Messiah. But do we also know John to be a legal witness put forward by God? Do we think of John in those terms? What is all this talk in our text and in John 5 about testimony and bearing witness? And what relevance does it have for us in knowing Jesus today? Well, we hope to find out answers to those questions as I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. John, or rather God, sends John to bear witness to the Christ. God sends John to bear witness to the Christ. We'll see two things, who John is not and then who the Christ is. The other Gospels call this figure, the forerunner, they call him John the Baptist. And they give us a picture of John 
preaching repentance, urging people to confess their sins and to be baptized by John. They picture him baptizing there in the Jordan River. But here in John's gospel, this fourth gospel, he's simply described by his name John, and his work of baptizing that only comes up in the background. What the author brings forward instead is John's role as witness, something never mentioned in the other gospels. It starts in verse 6 of John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. You call a witness. Where do you call a witness? You do that in court. This is the language of the courtroom, of witnesses being called forward to provide legal testimony in front of a judge. And it's not incidental here. It runs all the way through this passage. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him, about the Word. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John. Then you go to verse 32, and John bore witness. And again, verse 34, and I have seen, says John, and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the writer of the gospel over and again puts it before us, and we want to ask, what is the deal with all this legal lingo? Well, John, the writer of the gospel, is telling us that there's a court case unfolding here. There's a court case running in the background all the way through John's book. In fact, at different points all the way to chapter 21, you can find those words testimony and bear witness. They're used repeatedly because God Himself is taking His people to court. John 1 verse 6, John the Baptist was sent from God. This is God's doing. And Jesus Himself touches on this whole court case in chapter 5, which we read, verse 36, Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me me. So, what we have in this gospel is God pressing a very legal case, official legal case against His people. And His case is, His, his claim is that He, their God, has provided a Savior for them. What are they going to do in response? God is saying to His people, I have fulfilled my covenant promise. I've kept my legal obligation. Are you keeping yours? This person, of Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Son of God. There can be no doubt about it, for all the witnesses agree. And according to God's law through Moses, where two or three witnesses agree, then the point is established as a legal fact. So, that's the, one of the deeper elements here in John's gospel is that all throughout it, God is putting forth this 
covenant relationship and God's legal claims within it. You remember that that covenant began officially with Abraham in what's called the covenant of grace. It's called covenant of grace because it was initiated by God. God started it. It wasn't man's idea. And in that covenant, God promised to be God to His people. He wasn't obligated to make that promise, but He promised to give salvation. He promised to give them life. He promised to give them all that they needed in order to live with Him in peace and joy. It is fully the covenant of His grace. And in this covenant, God laid down what He wanted from His people. We read it in Deuteronomy 10 this morning. What does God want from His people? Trust me. Love me. Obey me. He's not looking for all kinds of crazy things. Just trust and obey. Believe in Him as Savior. Love Him back by obeying His commands. This beautiful relationship of love that God established with Abraham and with Israel, it was nevertheless a formal legal relationship at the same time, just exactly like our marriages are, right? Everybody who's married, you are legally married. That's a legally binding relationship, but it's a relationship of love. It's a relationship of very deep passion, commitment. That's why the Ten Commandments, for example, in God's covenant, they were originally placed inside the Ark of the Testimony because the Ten Commandments summarized the legal terms of the covenant arrangement. The Lord promised to be Israel's God, and He proved that to be true by rescuing them out of Egypt, and now the people were to show their love for Him by walking in obedience to God's covenant law. Here, the two tables of the law, here is, are the terms of the covenant. Thing is, the longer time went on, history went on, the more Israel drifted away from their covenant God. Instead of trust and obey with a heart of love and devotion, Israel lost their love for God. They put their trust in other things. And in the time of Jesus on earth, God's people were busy putting their trust mostly in themselves. Their love for God had grown cold. So much so that when John the Baptist came announcing the Messiah's imminent arrival, and when the Messiah himself came to Israel, what was the response of God's people? Well, John, the writer, tells us in verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that's why the Lord comes as judge with this court case. He's coming to hold his people to account. God has been faithful to his promises. God has kept every covenant commitment from his side, but have his people responded with trust and obedience? Have you responded with trust and obedience, beloved? God's court case was first pressed with Israel, but He will press it again. He will press it again with the church. 
and ultimately with the whole world. When he comes in his son Jesus Christ on the clouds to judge the living and the dead, that will be the great culmination of the court case God has. The testimony of John comes to you and to me this morning. Very plainly, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To believe that, to accept that means everlasting life, but to reject it like so many Jews in John's day did is to doom yourself to everlasting destruction. So where do you stand, brothers and sisters? Like the Jews, we are God's covenant people today, and we too are put in the spotlight in God's courtroom. Do you accept in faith the testimony of John about Jesus or not? Do you love the Savior and give proof of that love by worshiping God and loving your neighbor in obedience to God's commandments? John presses this court case because he knows and God knows that not all church people are believers. Not all church people love Jesus. It's one of those cold realities the Bible makes abundantly clear. We see that coming out in the very group that approaches John the Baptist in our text, verse 19. It says there, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now that phrase, the Jews, can at times refer to the whole nation, but in this gospel, most of the time, it refers to the leadership based in Jerusalem, led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests. The Pharisees are even mentioned in verse 24. So, the leaders send a group of priests and Levites to investigate John the baptizer, and in their approach, in their attitude, there is aggression. There's even hostility. Literally, they say, you, who are you? They, they, they put it strongly. They put it directly. It's kind of like we might say, who do you think you are? Who are you to be out here preaching and baptizing people? Who authorized you to do this? Do you think you're somebody special, John? So they approach him not in a neutral way, seeking information. They approach him as critical opponents. And that explains how John answers them. The first thing he does is to clarify that he himself is not the Christ. That was implied in their question. Everyone, as I mentioned, was, had been waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, to come. No one knew exactly what the Christ would do when he got there, but they knew that it would be unique. They knew that it would be wonderful and it would be for the salvation of God's people. So, was this desert preacher and baptizer, was he the one? And John immediately says, no, 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 I am not the one. Actually, it's described rather emphatically, kind of in an awkward phrasing in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, 
I am not the Christ. It's like John is tripping over himself to say, no, 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 I am not the Christ. He's come to bear witness to the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Then they go on to ask him whether he is Elijah or the prophet. And we want to ask, well, why would you ask about, why would you ask those questions? Well, certain figures mentioned in the Old Testament, one being Elijah, one being the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, they were expected in some way to appear at or around the time of when the Christ Himself would appear. Elijah was, I think you know, that very fiery prophet of judgment in the days when Israel was steeped in idol worship led by King Ahab. And there's even a prophecy in Malachi's book that foretold this. Let me quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Jews had good reason to think that Elijah was coming before the Christ would come. So if John denied that he was the Messiah, is he perhaps this Elijah? And then John emphatically says, I am not. Now, this has puzzled explainers, puzzled me most of the week, because as we read in Matthew 17, Jesus Himself says later that John the Baptist was, in fact, the Elijah of Malachi's prophecy. We read that together. That doesn't mean that John was actually Elijah raised from the dead. That's not what's meant. John was his own unique person, distinct from Elijah the person, but as the angel said to his father Zechariah at the time of his birth, John the Baptist was sent to go ahead of the Lord, and I quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Luke writes about that in chapter 1. So if John, in fact, was the Elijah who was to come, why does he deny it here? Could it be, some have suggested this, that John did not realize who he was? Could it be that he didn't understand the significance of his own ministry? Well, I don't think that's very likely, given that his father Zechariah knew and certainly would have told him what the angel had said to him as John grew up. And also consider that the Holy Spirit was upon John for his task. So he would have had an, an awareness of his calling and also, as we know from Matthew's gospel, like Elijah, John lived in the wilderness. He lived, you could say, in the style of Elijah. He wore a garment of camel's hair. Elijah wore a garment of hair. John wore a leather belt around his waist. Elijah wore a leather belt around his waist. Elijah, John wore a belt around his waist. Elijah lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and wild honey. John lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and wild honey. So if John looks like Elijah and preaches judgment like Elijah, he must know that he has been sent in the spirit of Elijah. But why then deny it to the Jewish leaders? I think the answer is this, because he did not want to take the focus even for a microsecond off of 
the Christ. For if John had admitted to these people to being the Elijah who was to come, the spotlight would have come fully on him. He would have been an instant rock star. Elijah is here. People would wrongly elevate his status while all but ignoring the humble and lowly Messiah whom John is about to say is in your midst. The people had these wild misconceptions about both the Elijah and, and the Messiah, about what they would do and how they would act. They thought Elijah would come with fire and power like he had left. They thought the Messiah would come with all kinds of military force and they would combine to bring power and glory and honor back to the Israelites. Even Jesus, recall from His ministry, was very hesitant to admit publicly that He was the Christ. Recall how He silenced the evil spirits who went out shouting that Jesus is the Christ. He said, be quiet. So, in truth, John can say to those who are asking him, I'm not the Elijah you're thinking about. Don't look at me in the way that you conceive of Elijah. Forget about Elijah. Focus on the Christ. I'm here to witness about the Messiah. That's the one you've got to focus on. The one whose sandal strap I am not even worthy to untie, says John. As John will say later, he must increase, but I must decrease. For John's sole purpose was to make clear just who the Christ is. That's quite a statement that John makes there about the sandal. You ever think, do you ever think of Jesus as someone whose sandal strap you and I are unworthy to untie? What's John saying there? Well, John, John's example points to the lowest of the lowest tasks for a slave, a household slave, that he might perform for his master. You can imagine how smelly feet might get, right? walking around in the dirt of Israel, which was hot and dry and dusty most of the time. At the end of the day, the master came home with his feet in his sandals for the day, those feet would be stinky, let's be honest. It would be a menial, unpleasant task for a household servant, if he had to bend down, so now you're down close to those stinky feet, and undo the master's sandal strap. That would be the lowest of the lowest tasks. But John says in, in, in great humility, I am not even worthy to do that for Jesus. Can we say that? That is one of those deeper things this fourth gospel teaches us, namely how great, how magnificent our Savior is and how truly lowly we are. Do we truly treat Jesus with the honor, the honor He deserves? 
And why is this Jesus so great? Why is he so above us? Why is he so worthy of our honor? Well, John highlights one key reason in verse 29 when he comes with his explicit testimony. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's got a way of saying a lot in just a few words. Let's start with that opening phrase, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, you and I, we're used to that expression. We use it more frequently. We hear it in certain hymns, but on John's lips, it's the first time. It's brand spanking new. What would it have meant to the Israelites, to, to the disciples of John? People knew about lambs used in sacrifices at the temple, but they especially would have known about the Passover lamb. The Passover, it turns out, is a big thing in John's gospel. He highlights it time and again. Every year when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the people remembered by its death, by the cover of the blood of that lamb, which had been painted on the door frames of Israelites of old in Egypt, by the blood of the lamb, the people of God were spared from the angel of death who would pass over their homes. By the command of God, by the blood of that lamb, the people were given life. They were spared. They were given life. And they were given freedom from slavery in Egypt. And now, says John the baptizer, Jesus is this lamb in human flesh. That's a big reason why I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal strap. Because this Jesus will go on to lay down his life in order to free me and all of God's people from slavery to sin. I am not worthy of this Savior. And John adds a bit more. It's not just us Jews, but anyone from anywhere, he says. That's what John means when he adds, who takes away the sin of the world. Now again, world, that word can mean different things in, in different contexts. It can mean all of creation. It can mean sometimes the unbelieving world over against the believing people of God. It can also mean more simply a distinction between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And that's how it's meant here. It's the same contrast found earlier in verse 10 with different words. Verse 10, He, the light of the world, He was in the world, yet the world did not know Him. That's Gentiles. Then verse 11, He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. That's Israelites, Jews. The world versus Christ's own is a contrast between Gentiles and Jews. And now John in verse 29 is saying, look, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, not just for the covenant people of God called the Israelites, but for every person in the whole world, for, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, from all the Gentiles, 
everyone who will put their trust in this Jesus. John's testimony is certainly aimed first at the Jewish nation, but it extends beyond to all the nations of the world. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, for He is the only one who can save you from your sins. Believe Him. And He's the only one who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist adds that. He takes us deeper now into to grasping something of the greatness of, of Jesus. Verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He, here comes, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John says, I'm only baptizing you with water. He will baptize you with the Spirit. You know that John literally washed the people in the Jordan River and in other places. He washed them with water as a symbol of the washing away of their sins according to God's promise as they repented and confessed. John gave the people a message and a sign, but that's all that John could give them. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, gives them something much more. He baptizes believers with the Spirit. He fulfills that promise of God to wash away their sins, and He adds to that His Spirit. He's been given the Spirit Himself in full measure, and it's both in, in Jesus' power and it's in Jesus' good pleasure to bestow the Spirit upon you and upon me. Why? What's the value of the Spirit living upon us? So that the power of sin no longer has the upper hand in your life and mine. <clears throat> You've got the blood of Jesus that works to wash away all my guilt, and the Spirit of Jesus works to wash away all my filth, guilt and filth, so that I am not only in good standing with God in His courtroom, that's my guilt gone, but also that in day-to-day -day life I more and more act like a child of God. Jesus does this for me. Jesus does this for you, beloved, and for every true believer. Don't miss out. In faith, in prayer, seek both the blood of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus and be renewed as sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. This is that fuller salvation that the Lamb of God brings. So accept this testimony of John the Baptist and pass it on to your neighbor. As we were encouraged to do this week at our congregational meeting, pass it on so they can believe. Pass on also the final testimony of our text. The fourth gospel here in chapter 1 is just starting out, but 
John the Baptist is fast at work revealing to us the incredible nature, the incredible wonder of our Savior. In our text alone, he's called a number of different things. He's called Lord, verse 23. He's called Lamb of God. He's called the one who came before John. And then he's called the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, verse 33. And then finally, verse 34, John says, And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Can we, can we taste that for the first time? I know we're so familiar with that expression, but imagine you were in the crowd hearing those words for the first time. This is the Son of God. A man who is the Son of God standing before us. The Jesus who walked the earth in the company of those 12 very ordinary men who were sinners like you and me, He is the Son who came down from heaven, who is of eternity. He's from before John. He's divine. He's God in the flesh. He is Yahweh. You remember Yahweh. Yahweh of old who came down on Mount Sinai in smoke and fire and rumbling with that trumpet sound. Yahweh who descended in glory in the cloud in the tabernacle. Yahweh who led His people by a pillar of cloud and fire through the desert into the promised land. This same God is standing on earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth As John said, the gospel writer, verse 14, he is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he is for us, our Savior. This fourth gospel will have a lot to say about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. But already now, brothers and sisters, let us stand in awe, really in awe, before Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God, and He's also the Lion of Judah. So go to Him for the forgiveness of all your sins. Love Him as your covenant God and Savior. Obey Him as your Lord and King. And then on the last day when the judge will convene that final court case and we'll all be there, on the last day in God's courtroom, it will be then said of you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You believed the witnesses I sent. Therefore, enter into the joy of your master. Amen.